to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we share the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm your host, Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. If you typically listen to this podcast as new episodes are released, then you know that it's been several months since our last release. Well, I had to take a personal break given a scheduled surgery on my neck where I had several vertebrae fused. All went well and was successful. However, what I didn't realize is how much it would affect my throat and my voice. It took several more weeks, actually months, than anticipated, but I think it's time to get back on track with our podcast here. That said, I hope to publish this entire new series, and it's a big one, by the end of 2023. That gives me about two months. So while on that break, I've been listening and inventorying a pretty large and in-depth study of Dad's, which covers the man after God's own heart, King David. As always, Dad's approach to the life of David is very unique and hit me right where I was, teaching after teaching. This series is over 20 episodes in length, and rightfully so. There's so much to learn from the story of David's life. So much more than his run-ins with the likes of Goliath and Bathsheba. Matter of fact, it can more accurately be defined as a saga than simply referred to as a life story. I'm sure Dad knew that far too well, so well that he entitled this series, very simply, The Saga of David. One thing I always like to say about this podcast, and our overall effort of sharing Dad's teachings in whatever form, is that our target audience is someone who learns about Dad's teachings for the first time, say, five years from now, ten years from now, or maybe even a hundred years from now. These teachings are timeless now and will remain timeless. However, there is an ongoing story, a secondary story, that's told across all these podcast episodes, and that's the story of the teacher himself. Little by little, as Dad tells small snippets of his life, you can see him peel back one vulnerability at a time, And you can begin to pick up on Nick Harris, the man, his imperfections and all. These are the things that made him who he was, and you can relate them back to your life, both good and bad. His abandonment issues as a child, how the death of his father separated him from God and the church for so many years, how he made his way back into the ministry, how he struggled with the fact that he had been divorced, his victories and defeats as a father, and how he ended up in raising and loving kids that weren't even his. I'm one of those. Also how his thriving ministry was derailed by a sinister act of terrorism, and how he relentlessly preached the message of what he called, and what we continue to share as relational grace. Now for those of you who've been following the ongoing situation between First Church in downtown Oklahoma City, where Dad pastored for over 20 years, and the United Methodist Conference, I wanted to point out one small sentence you'll hear in this episode. First off, I feel confident that I can say that Dad would not be surprised where the Methodist Church has ended up today. In fact, in many aspects, he predicted it and knew this was where the United Methodist Conference was headed. Dad tells this story often because it was such a pivotal moment in both he and my mom's life. But he mentions the story of the bishop calling him on Christmas Eve night, telling him about the opportunity in Oklahoma City to move our family to what was then a dying church in the middle of a dead downtown Oklahoma City. He felt it was the worst, quote, political move he could have made then. And then he says simply, the conservative voice was going to be eliminated. Well, as we will hear, God said, go. And mom and dad went to Oklahoma City. Thank goodness they did. Later in this episode, dad mentions that he realized that the Methodist church needed him more than others did for that season in his life, for many reasons. There'll be more to come on this topic from dad throughout the series. It is all very interesting to hear from him in retrospect. In listening to this series, I found that dad tells so many stories. Some sad, some fun, some joyous, some challenging. Our hope is that you learn more about Dad's challenges through life, 
that you find encouragement in the hope that he had and that we all have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The same timeless hope that encouraged King David, another imperfect man, but nonetheless, a man after God's own heart. So with that, let's kick off this new series, The Saga of David, with this first episode titled, Your Circumstances Through God's Eyes. Talk to you today about uh, seeing things from God's point of view. Seeing things from God's point of view. And let me begin this morning with a question. And the question is this. What do you really want out of this life that God has given to you? Now this is a question, beloved, we should all be asking ourselves. What do we want out of our lives? Now I don't care how old you are and I don't care how young you are. You should continually be asking yourself, what do I want out of life? Now with that in mind, let me ask you a second question. At this moment in time, are you getting what you want out of life? Are you content with the way things are going? Now, if your answer is no, then I ask you this. What is the problem? Why are you not achieving what you want and expect? Well, I know the answer without even asking. The thing that keeps all of us from achieving what we want to be or become is directly related to the circumstances we all face in our lives. Now, that has always been the issue, the circumstances we face. Now, I have found that there are only two ways to look at these circumstances. We can look at our circumstances in life from the human point of view, or we can look at them from God's point of view. It's strictly up to us. Now, that great prophet Isaiah has provided us with some tremendous insight on the issue of our points of view. And he tells us about these viewpoints in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Isaiah writes, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, uh, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Now, that's the important part here. You see, Isaiah affirms what I just said. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the great prophet tells us that we can see things from our own points of view, or we can see things from God's point of view, because what Isaiah says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my way, says the Lord. Now, there is a vast difference, beloved, between God's point of view and our point of view. Of course, I don't have to tell you uh, that it is best to see our circumstances from God's point of view, right? But if you're like me, you don't always see things that way. And that has been one of the problems in my life. I tend to see all of my circumstances from my own perspective. And I struggle with my native circumstances because all that I find myself doing is I have something negative arise in my life. And then I begin to look at it from my perspective. And I struggle with that circumstance in my own power and in my own ability. And therefore, I constantly have to remind myself of how wrong that is. I constantly have to remind myself that his ways are higher than my ways. And that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. As a matter of fact, I'm so far from him 
that my pitiful thoughts amount to nothing. It's his thoughts that count. In fact, let me tell you something I've discovered over the years. The one thing that has ever come from my tendency to see things my way is personal disaster. Every time I have ever gotten myself into a mess I can't get out of, it always relates to the fact that I've tried to resolve my problems on my own and in my own strength. Now, I could give you a dozen personal examples of this, but I would rather use an example from the Old Testament this morning. It's found in the book of Samuel, chapter 16 and 17, where the great historian of Israel describes the radical difference that often exists between the divine and the human points of view. Now, in these two chapters, we find two people who are forced to decide which point of view they're going to allow to prevail in their lives. Now, one of those persons was the famous prophet and judge that we know from the Old Testament as Samuel. And in Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, we find these words. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Now, do you see? In this verse, we find this great man, this prophet of God, in a state of grief. He is sitting on his door stoop. He is crying his eyes out. He is miserable. He is full of anguish. And he was in this condition because God had told him something he couldn't bring himself to accept. He could not accept the divine point of view. He wanted God to see things as he saw them. You see... What had happened here is that God had rejected his friend Saul ben Kish as the king of Israel. In fact, God told Samuel that he was absolutely through with this man Saul. But Samuel couldn't accept this. So we find him in this state of abject mourning. Now, why was this? Well, there's several reasons. For one thing, it was because Samuel had personally anointed Saul to be the king over Israel. And Samuel knew that if God rejected Saul, he'd lose face. In the eyes of the people. This had been the biggest thing that had ever happened to the tribal alliances of Israel to anoint a king. God had always been Israel's king. Now, he had stepped forward at the command of God and anointed this man Saul. But now here, only a few years passed, and God says, huh, I'm through with him. Samuel says, I'm going to lose face here. What am I going to do? People will no longer respect me. So, what does he do? He sits down and mourns. Now, there's another reason why Samuel was in mourning. It was because he loved Saul. Saul had proven to be an enormously effective warrior. He had gone to battle against the enemies of Israel. He had conquered on every side. I mean, this was a man of strength and power and a man that Samuel had learned to love in spite of some of their disagreements at the beginning. They were bosom buddies. And those two things called Samuel to resist and even reject the divine viewpoint concerning King Saul. However, now let me say this, beloved. Just because Samuel didn't accept the divine viewpoint, didn't change God's mind about Saul. It never does. God's viewpoint has always been perfect, and he knew that Israel required a new king. So God spoke to the prophet, and he said this. He said, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to the house of Jesse in the village of Bethlehem, for I have provided a king for myself among his sons. Now, believe me, this divine command troubled Samuel. And it troubled him for a reason other than his own self-image and his personal regard for Saul. You see, he knew how volatile Saul could be. Now, let me tell you something. 
You want to see a guy with a temper on him. Saul had a temper. You didn't cross this guy or you paid enormous consequences. And when he lost his temper, which he did frequently, somebody could die. Samuel knew that. And I can see Samuel's fear of what he's about to do in his next words that he spoke. He asked God this question. He says, God, how can I go? If Saul hears about this, he'll kill me. Now, beloved, there's a human point of view for you. God, if I do what you tell me to do, I'm going to die. Now, that's the human perspective on this. Samuel was saying, God, I know you're sending me to do this job. I know you've placed it within my hands to anoint Israel's next king. I understand that, God, but God, if I do this job you're sending me to do, I'll probably not live to see the consequences of it. Oh, God, don't send me. Huh? It reminds me of Christmas Eve night. Chris, when was it? 1981. I'm putting together Jamie Don's Christmas present, which is a yellow tractor. And that was something you should have only seen in your wildest dreams. Because I have got tractors strung out all over the living room. And I cannot get it together. My knuckles are bleeding from where I've twisted the wrenches and they slipped off and gashed my... I am not in a good state of mind. Negativity is hanging all over me. I'm saying with every other breath, I can't do this. The phone rings. I think this voice speaks on the other. He says, Brother Harris. Right away, that makes me suspicious. Nobody ever calls me Brother Harris. That's what they call my dad. Brother Harris. I said, yes. He said, this is Bishop John Wesley Hart. Well, No bishop is going to call me on Christmas Eve night. What kind of bishop does that? And so I thought it was my buddy Larry King calling me from from Clinton. And I said, Larry, you stupid idiot, what are you doing? And the voice on the other end said, excuse me? I said, "Uh uh-oh. To Chris. The bishop said, Nick, I thought I'd better call you this evening. We have an opportunity for you. Now, when a Methodist bishop tells you that you have an opportunity, run for your life. It is usually a death sentence. I knew what church was open. There was only one church in the state open. It was that dead church down in the middle of downtown Oklahoma City. I wanted that like I wanted another hole in my head. I've got one of the best churches in northwest Oklahoma. I don't need that. And the bishop said to me, the cabinet met an emergency meeting tonight, and they've decided you're the man to go to First Church Oklahoma City. And I said, "Uh, you've made two great mistakes. One of them is I'm not the man, and the second one, I'm not going. And he said, well, he said, I think you better pray about it. And I said, I'm not praying about it. I'm not going. Remember, Chris? He says, oh, I think you will pray about it. And he hung up the phone. I'm in a state of shock here. From the human point of view, this is the worst political move I could have possibly made. 
This was death. They were sending me to bury me, and I knew it. The conservative voice was going to be eliminated. I said, Chris, what is it, honey? I said, well, the bishop just offered us a church. She said, where? I said, First Church, Oklahoma City. She said, well, what did he say? What did you say? And I said, I said, no. She said, what did he say? He said, I think you better pray about it. And she said, well, we probably should. And so we go in to pray about it. I don't even get to my knees when the divine point of view came rushing on the scene. God says, I don't hit my knees. And God says, go. I said, wait a minute, God. I don't want to go. I don't care. Go. This is something I have arranged for you from the foundations of the earth. That's what he said to me. And you will miss your chance if you don't. I got up. Chris said, what did the Lord say? I said, he said, go. And she said, yes, that's what he said to me too. I go and pick up the phone, call the bishop back. I said, Bishop, Chris and I have decided we'll go. He said, I thought you would. I said, what made you think so? He said, because God wants you to go, and I knew you'd do what God says. Now, do you see, from the human point of view, I couldn't see anything good coming out of that. But from God's point of view, he put a man in downtown Oklahoma City for no other reason than to be in place on April 19th. 1995. Because he knew the man that was needed for that hour. And he placed me there and trained me there to do that job. I couldn't see it ahead of time, but I'll guarantee you that God's will is perfect. If I would have looked at this thing from the human perspective, yes, I might have ended up at Boston Avenue. But I'd never met these two people. I'd have never met these two people. I've never met some of you. I've never had you give me the honor of calling me pastor. You know the worst thing about retirement? Nobody calls you pastor. And to me, I'd rather be called pastor than be called president. God knows what he's doing, beloved. You see, Samuel... When he began to resist this, he, he was saying to God, God, I know you're sending me to be a job, to do a job, but I don't think you're big enough to protect me while I do that job. Beloved, here's what I have to say about this. If God sends a person to do a job, he'll protect that person while he or she does that job. People say to me, Nick, just going to Africa, when... You're in the physical state that you're in. Don't you have any concerns? From the human point of view, yes, I do. But I'm going to tell you what, from a spiritual point of view, I go with confidence because I know God doesn't send me there to allow me to die there. He sends me to do a job. He'll protect me in that job. Now, this accusation that Samuel levels, God, I know you're calling me, but I'm going to die if I do it. You see, it should have have irritated God. God should have said, you jerk. I'm just going to walk off and leave you because you're a jerk. But God's patient. That's what I love about God. He's even patient with me and he shouldn't be. So God said this to Samuel. It's so 
It's so wonderful. He says this. Prophet, do exactly as I say, and you'll have no reason to fear Saul. So here's what I want you to do. Take a heifer with you and go to the house of Jesse. If anyone stops you on the way and wants to know what you're doing and where you're going, just tell them, I'm going to Bethlehem. I'm the prophet of God. I have the authority to do this. I'm the last great judge of Israel, and I am going to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice, this heifer, to the Lord. Well, to Samuel's credit, he decided to do exactly as the Lord commanded, regardless of the threat. He took the heifer, and he made the 16-mile journey down to Bethlehem. And when the elders, the men of power in Bethlehem, saw the great prophet, instead of the prophet falling into fear, the men of Bethlehem fell in They go, look at this. The prophet of God is coming. He's got a heifer. He's going to sacrifice this. Thing. Wow, here in Bethlehem. It wasn't at all what he expected. You know what I found? Most of the negative circumstances in my life are not what I think they are. See, I project on them. Do you ever do that? I get this worst case scenario thing. And I begin to, my imagination goes into overdrive. And I say to myself, ooh, this is so bad. I imagine the worst thing happening. Am I alone? I don't think so. So they watched as Samuel made his way to the house of Jesse ben Obed. And in doing as God commanded, Samuel demonstrated that he had finally chosen to accept God's point of view, not his own. Now, once Samuel reached the house of Jesse, can you imagine the shock of Jesse? He's the shepherd. He's got a shepherd's family here. He's got eight sons, and they herd sheep. And here's this great man, Samuel, and he comes walking up to his place, leading a heifer. You know, Jesse's in one of those moments, you know. He, he, his draw job. What on earth? What's the man of God doing at his house? Well, Samuel informed Jesse he had come to his house to sacrifice this heifer to the Lord. But he says to Jesse, now look, Jesse, I'm going to sacrifice this heifer just like God has told me to do. But I need some assistance. I can't, this is a heifer. I, 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 I can handle a sheep, but I can't handle a heifer. I'm going to need your help. So he told Jesse that he would sanctify both him and his sons so they would help offer the sacrifice. Now, by this point, Samuel had been aware for some time that this involved far more than the sacrifice of a heifer. He understood that God had sent him to this place not to sacrifice a heifer, but to anoint a new king. Sacrificing the heifer had simply been a ruse uh, for his coming to Bethlehem. And after the heifer had been sacrificed, once they got it, sons are all sanctified, they all prepare this heifer, they place it on the altar, they set it on fire, then... Samuel slips over to Jesse and he says, Jess, took his glasses off. He said, Jess, I guess you know I'm not here to sacrifice a heifer. Jesse said, I thought it was strange. He said, I'm here to anoint one of your sons to be Israel's next king. Now, I want you to listen to the words of 1 Samuel 16.3. Then, these are, these are God's instructions to Samuel previous to this time. He says, then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. 
and you shall anoint for me the one I named to you. That's God's instructions. He shares that with Jesse. Now, God would also issue this instruction in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. This is what the Lord says here in verse 7 of that chapter. He says, now look, when you go to anoint this man, do not look on the physical appearances of David's, of, of Jesse's sons. Do not even be impressed by their heights. That is how tall they are. That is not how I evaluate people. I don't see people as men and women see them. They look on the outward appearances. I don't. I am God, and I look upon the heart of persons. So Samuel called for the first son of Jesse. Now the name of this young man was Eliab. And girls, if you would have seen Eliab, your little hearts would have fluttered. Now you talk about a movie star. This guy was a movie star. He looked like a king. He was regal. From a human point of view, he was tall, he was dark, and he was handsome. In addition, he was also a great warrior. Well, Samuel, as a human being, looked at Eliab and he said, Surely, the Lord's anointed is before me. This guy is king. I can tell by looking. See, God told him, don't look on the hour, don't look how tall, don't look how dark, don't look how handsome, don't look at the warrior in him. But Samuel says, whew, man, this is the Lord's anointing. But God whispered in his ear and said, I have refused him. Eliab is not the one. So, what does Samuel do? He calls for the second son, a young man whose name was Abinadab. Now, this young man stood before Samuel. He measured him up and down. But then God whispers in his ear and says, no. And so he turns to Jesse and he says, God has not chosen this one either. You see, this is, this is just an amazing thing to me. Now, then Samuel called for the third son. His name is Shama. Shama. And God whispers into his ear, no. And he says to Jesse, this is not the one. And so this continues on. This process continues on until Samuel has had seven sons stand before him. And each time, Samuel was forced to tell Jesse that the Lord had not chosen any of these sons to wear the crown. And the ancient prophet was stunned by this. He assumed this was all of the sons. He's stunned that God has said no every time. After all, the Lord had sent him to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons, but God had rejected every son that was there. Now, Samuel knew something was wrong. So he asked Jesse, Jesse, is this all your sons? There must be another. And Jesse answered this way. From the strictest human point of view that you can imagine, he says, there remains only my youngest son, but he is not here. He's just a young boy. He's just a young boy. And right now he's in the fields watching our flocks. He's not a king. Are you kidding? He's a kid! Now, beloved, do you see what's happening here? Jesse was looking at things from the human point of view. And I would have too. This eighth son of Jesse, David by name, was still a student. He was still a student. Of course, you may be asking, I've never heard that. A student? A student where? Well, he was a student at the most important institution of higher learning in the world of that day. It was and is called Shepherd's University. 
And beloved, some of the greatest men of the Bible went to school at this university. Take Moses, for example. He attended there. You see, he, it was here at Shepherd University that Moses learned to lead people. Now, think about this from the human point of view. Human wisdom said that the best place to learn to lead people was to sit at the right hand of some king. And that's what he did. He grew up sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh, learning politics and power from the greatest man in the world of that day. For 40 years, he sat at the feet of this man. For 40 long years, he learned how to lead. But when he finally got the opportunity to lead people himself, he used what he learned from Pharaoh, and he tried to lead his people the way Pharaoh led his people, by power and human wisdom. And as a result, he abused his power and ended up being accused of murder. So what did God have to do? He had to send him to Shepherd's University. God knew that by keeping a flock of sheep, he would better learn how to handle a nation of people than if he sat forever in the seats of power. Sheep will humble you. Listen, sheep, I saw it in Kenya. They are dumb beyond belief. They need leaders. We came out on this road after four and a half hours. I'm finally coming home. I can't wait to go. I'm ready to be out of that red dirt that's all over me and all under me and all in me. Blow your nose and red dirt comes out. You know, it's just, it's, it's horrible. And so we come out on this brand new highway. The Kenyan government made this highway, tarmac. Well, nobody told the sheep and the goats. And so they're wandering up and down the road. My driver's doing 75 miles an hour in the EFO, EOFO pickup. I'm scared out of my mind. He's weaving around these sheep. Somebody needs to be leading those sheep. They're too stupid to get out of the road. They need the leader. Israel was the same way. They need the leader. So what did God do? He sent Moses to Shepherd's University. Well, David proved to be an honor student. This is where he was enrolled. Also, he's keeping sheep, right? He's enrolled at Shepherd's University. Now listen to the words of 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 34 and 35. Let's see if he learned his lessons. But David said to Saul, now here we're right. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a bear or a lion came and took a lamb out of the flock, I ran like a crazy man. No. What does it say? He says, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Are you kidding me? Do you see? These two verses show how well David had learned his lesson at the university. He had, been, he had learned to follow the divine point of view. How so, you ask? Well, from a human boy point of view, what David did in these two verses is stupid, right? What teenage boy in his right mind would take on a wild bear and a wild lion? Hello? If your teenage son, who had nothing in his hand but a stick about that long with a knob on the end, if that's all that he had in his hand, should decide to challenge a bear and a lion in combat, you'd say something like this to him. Son, that was a dumb thing to do.
we'd say to our teenage son, I can get another lamb, but I can't get another son. Oh, I've preached that sermon ad infinitum ad nauseum to both of my boys. Now, David didn't see it this way. He'd been to Shepherd's University. He saw each of the sheep as being a trust from God. In other words, I'm telling you, he saw things from the divine point of view. Jesse did not. So he didn't understand his youngest son at all. There was nothing about this boy. He just thought he was immature. Only a crazy boy goes out and attacks a bear and a lion. Now, but Samuel all of a sudden is having a change of mind. When this boy comes up, he feels a witness. He hears God whispering in his ear. This boy will become a man who will be after my own heart. Oh, he turned out to be a rough scullion. He ended up being a murderer, an adulterer, a liar. But I'm going to tell you something. In spite of all of those sins, all of those horrid things he had done, he loved God. The things that mattered to God mattered to him, and God recognized it in that boy. Now, I've often asked myself, what would have happened if Samuel had anointed the regal Eliam? You ever thought about that? What if Samuel had chosen to, to, to follow the human point of view? I, could, I can assure you it would have changed the entire course of Israel's history. And, beloved, I only say that to say this. That it pays for each one of us to follow the divine viewpoint. After all, we do not have to struggle the way Samuel did. Why? Because you and I, you and I have Christ in us. Have you ever thought about that? We have Christ in us. We have Christ in us. And we know what that means. When Christ comes to live in us, what does He do? He begins restoring the divine nature in us. In fact, he even enabled us to overcome the world's thinking. In fact, listen to what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We don't know in our humanness the mind of the Lord. We can't instruct. We can't say, God, I think you're wrong about that. God, I got this circumstance, I got that circumstance. I know what your word says, but I just can't be right. No. What does he say? He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have what? The mind of Christ. In what? In the person of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, he becomes our teacher. He tells us of things that are to come. He shares with us the divine knowledge. You see, we have a new way of thinking because we have the mind of Christ at work in us. We don't think the way other people think. We don't think the way the world thinks. So when Isaiah tells us to let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts, he's telling us we must invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our lives. Because when we do, all of our uncertainty, all of our confusion comes to a screeching halt. And we begin to accept the divine point of view. We become more than conquerors through Christ, who strengthens us. I can remember, as I close, I can remember when my father 
passed away. The most devastating thing that had ever happened to me. I didn't understand it. Two weeks after my father died, I flew to Chicago to see the Cubbies play. And my brother-in-law met me, and he had uh, some place he had to go before we could go to the ballpark. And we drove down Madison Street in Chicago, and I saw people drunk, laying in the streets, their heads on the curb for a pillow. Men that, some of them looked to be 75, 80 years old, and here's my godly father, died the age of 54. I was so bitter. I was so bitter. I turned my back on God. I never darkened the door of a church for seven years. I just said, if that's how God is, I don't want any part of Him. Now, that's the human point of view. After I encountered God as reality in my life, and Christ came to live in me, and came to live as me, and His mind began to operate in me through the person of the Holy Spirit. One day God shared with me where my father was. He said, Son, do you really believe that I am the resurrection and the life? That he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live? I said, Yes, Lord, I believe that. And he said, Well, then why do you feel the way you do about your dad? He's just asleep. He's asleep for a while. I'll wake him up. He'll be rejoined with his body. You'll know him. He won't die again. And then God said this to me. He said, son, I had to take your father to a very special place to be with me so that it would free you to become the man I have made you to become said, as long as your father was alive, you would have belonged to the church. He said uh, that where he pastored, to that denomination, because he would have seen to it. He was so overpowering to you that you could not have resisted him. So I took him to be with me. And I set you loose on the Methodist church. Because they needed you. He said, the Assembly of God Church has got more good pastors and they know what to do with. So they're hanging around in the wings just waiting an opportunity. The Methodist Church needs preachers. And teachers, yes. But you see, I was looking at everything from the human point of view. But from God's point of view, God was working His plan. You see, here's the thing. If you know the end from the beginning, if you're the Alpha and Omega... You know the outcome. Let me share one other thing with you. In 1976, 77, I made my first trip to Rome. And I went to the Vatican Museum. And I happened to be there at a time when there wasn't anybody else there, James. I mean, it wasn't like it was when you and I were there. There wasn't anybody else in that big, long hall where those tapestries are. And I'm walking past those tapestries. All of a sudden, I pass one of Jesus at the Last Supper. He's standing at the end of the table. You guys remember it? And I walk along, and Jesus is watching me in this tapestry. And I went, and I would walk this way, and he walked. I'd walk this way, and he was still watching me. I said, that's 
strange. So I look around and I don't see any guards. So I slip over next to the wall. I take the edge of this priceless tapestry and I pull it back and I look underneath it. All I see is a bunch of strings and knots. It makes no sense at all. And then God whispered to me, Son, life is like a tapestry. I have it stretched out. And from my perspective, I'm looking down because I know the end from the beginning. I'm looking down on the completed work. You're standing underneath and you're just seeing a bunch of knots. Trust me. My ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. Relax. Relax in me. Trust me. And my Holy Spirit will be your comforter. Well, that was a lesson that I'll never forget. And it's taught me to trust the great tapestry maker. He sees it complete. I only see the knots. And that's my teaching for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Aerial Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at aerialministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Aerial Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com slash give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com slash missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.